Ideas in STEM Ed is a production of the Idea Engineering Student Center at UC San Diego, which works to promote community, success, and inclusion at all levels. My name is Darren Lapomi, Professor of Nanoengineering and Chemical Engineering and Faculty Director of the Idea Center. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a forum for the discussion of innovative and inclusive approaches to teaching and mentoring, and to support the personal and academic flourishing and success of students in science and engineering. To learn more about the Idea Center, visit jacobschool.ucsd.edu front idea. Lilo Pozzo is the Boeing Roundhill Professor for Excellence in Chemical Engineering at the University of Washington. She is also a professor and the interim chair of the Department of Material Science and Engineering. She earned her BS degree in chemical engineering at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez in 2001, and her PhD in chemical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University in 2006. She obtained her current position at UW after a postdoctoral stint at the National Institute for Standards and Technology Center for Neutron Research from 2006 to 2007. Her research concerns the development, measurement, and control of self-assembly processes for soft materials over nanometer and micrometer scales. Current projects include high-throughput experimentation and data science for materials design, functional emulsions, and materials for energy conversion and storage. She is known for her excellence in teaching and mentoring, scientific and technological outreach to Puerto Rico in recovery after Hurricane Maria, and advocacy of LGBTQ scientists and engineers, especially trans and Latinx communities. We spoke in this episode about a wide range of topics. Lilo, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> sure. Uh, how did you become interested in chemical engineering? Uh, so my, I, I come from a family of uh, at least one engineer. So my dad uh, was, is an electronic engineer. He's retired now. Um, so I've always been exposed to technology uh, in some regards. Uh, he used to work for this company called Olivetti, which um, most people know uh, of it because they made they made typewriters, uh, but they also made uh, the first personal computers uh, in in Europe. Uh, mm -hmm. So they were kind of like the IBM competitors in in Europe, and um, and he used to bring um, all kinds of um i mean computer parts and and things like this into the house and and i think that that was my first um uh engagement with with technology he would do some basic experiments also um and but in terms of chemical engineering actually that came out a little bit more um uh in high school and actually quite late in high school for the longest time, I thought I was going to be a surgeon. I wanted to go into med school. And then in the uh, junior year of high school, I had this, uh, this great chemistry uh, professor uh, uh, teaching, and, and he made chemistry super exciting. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of like uh, matched my excitement in chemistry with my interest in technology and solving problems. and, and and figure out that chemical engineering was going to be the right path for me. Fantastic. Did you have any special problems as a kid that special projects or problems uh, that you like to solve with these uh, computer parts? Like, 
alarm to, systems for rooms I, I, and stuff like that. We like my 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 dad had a lot of confidence in us uh, and and too much confidence in fact like <laughs> in terms of actually being safe with these things. Like he would show up with like boxes full of like electronic uh, components. Sometimes there were motors that we could just uh, I mean run with a, a nine volt battery, for example, and and just play with them and and make uh, all kinds of gimmicks and and things like that. But sometimes they were actually quite uh, 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 dangerous things, right? Like uh, I remember once he actually uh, came up with a power cord right that had actually been uh split into two and my brother and i connected it and it just started <laughs> making all kinds of like uh, so you <laughs> learned about electricity and potential and uh, currents uh, very quickly uh, uh essentially by trial by fire in these ways uh, so i wouldn't say that we were solving any kind of problem but we we're just playing with these things <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably uh, too, too much sometimes Mm -hmm. Reminds me of a time where I made a plywood robot and attached some uh, throwaway electrical components that uh, one of our family friends who worked at Kodak gave us. I grew up in the Rochester, New York area. And my mom said, that's very, very nice, but don't ever plug that in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it, I mean, we, we had all kinds of, I mean, these are really great memories from, from childhood. I I remember like back in the day you would use you used to get chemistry sets that were really all kinds of inorganic salts right like uh that um, many of them might have actually been um dangerous in in all kinds of ways and and we would just randomly mix them hoping that something <laughs> will happen right like then and, and sometimes they um, stuff did happen but there was no logic behind it or instruction manual that we could actually follow or uh, none of the tools that um, I think students that are being exposed to chemistry nowadays, uh, they're getting exposed in a much safer and controlled way, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, there are there are nice, uh, um, how do you say, uh, kits uh, that that have a scientific question essentially uh, guiding the activities. And yeah, so on. mini, that mini labs. <laughs> exactly, that did not sure. exist for us. Uh, we were just randomly playing with stuff. So, <laughs> so uh, going from randomly playing with stuff, stuff to doing stuff deliberately, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the work uh, you are currently doing? So uh, as, as some of you may know, or, or, or you may know that uh, I am also super interested in soft matter, right? Like that's how I grew up uh, in, in the academic world. I have um, anything that is soft and squishy, I'm just excited about. Uh, and um, I, I jump a lot, right, in terms of like uh, within this area, right? Like uh, sometimes they're polymers, sometimes they're gels, sometimes they're nanoparticles and so on. Uh, and, and I really love this. I love this because it allows me to, to connect the dots and sometimes port technologies or materials from one place to a different area and in this way be creative, right, about solving different problems. But the one thing that we're doing now that really, really gets me excited about the future is uh, rethinking the way we do this science with materials. So we are actually embarking an adventure in the lab um, with uh, really trying to integrate, um, uh, I mean, algorithms like, uh, I mean, machine learning tools or 
um, essentially uh, self-driving uh, algorithms for for uh, for designing experiments and, and executing experiments. And this has actually pushed us to think about how we execute our experiments. So we are using more robotic tools in the lab. We're analyzing uh, data in much higher throughput. And this forces us to, to also think about uh, how we extract knowledge from these uh, much larger amounts of data that is actually flowing uh, from our experiments. So I am really excited about this because I think that it is uh, something that could potentially revolutionize our, our fields uh, because uh, we frequently have to break down uh, really complex problems into just a few, uh, how do you say, like principal components. Uh, mm -hmm. And we, we kind of like oversimplify a lot of the problems, right, uh, that, that we're tackling because otherwise it would be really difficult to rationalize in, in their pure complexity. So by taking advantage of, of, of computers and, um, and, and high throughput uh, tools that are already established in, in other areas, uh, I think that we can, we can take advantage of more statistical uh, extraction of knowledge right uh, from, these, uh, from these data sets. Is, is, that a, is that a background that you had uh, in computer science or did you import the knowledge or take a sabbatical? <laughs> Not at all. This is uh, this is purely coming out of seeing what uh, I mean. A few laboratories have done, and and kind of understanding like, yeah, this is this totally makes sense. This is underutilized in soft matter too, uh, and and just I, I'm just naturally inquisitive and and try to. Uh, I mean, if something excites me, I'll figure out how to actually get into into that area and. And it's been a very slow uh, transition for us. It's actually it's the, the the caveat to all of this excitement, right? Uh, is that it actually requires us to learn a lot of skills that we didn't have in the lab. And uh, but I think that this is exciting, right? Uh, because you're you're whenever you're challenging yourself to learn new things, uh, it makes uh, essentially the activities that we do and we engage in in our everyday life uh, so much more meaningful and, and interesting. Uh, so yes, I've learned uh, about rapid prototyping. I've learned about designing uh, tools in CAD. Uh, I've learned about 3D printing. I've learned um, a lot of Python uh, programming. Um, I've learned a little bit of machine learning, but way less than my students know <laughs> in mm -hmm. terms of machine learning. Uh, so uh, that's a skill I'm still actually developing a lot of. Uh, but yeah, I, I find that it's it, it's exciting because it really has also um, opened up new avenues of collaboration with uh, teams from other departments that we would otherwise not have actually engaged sure. with. What are some of the downstream applications that excite you the most? In, in in terms of high throughput uh, in this area or just overall? Uh, overall. Overall. So um, let, I think that there are so many problems, uh, right, that, that, that we're going to be tackling and, and probably our, our kids are actually going to be uh, tackling and dealing with uh, that, that really deserve our attention. But right now, um, I'm, I'm really excited about the prospects of um, 
using synthetic uh, biology and um, reactors and separation uh, processes uh, that are going to have to be designed uh, to make these uh, type of new uh, ways of manufacturing high value products and chemicals uh, viable. Uh, that's really exciting. And, and we have a, an NSF sponsored project um, that um, in this area that is actually uh, uh, been extremely illuminating again, because it it forced me to learn a lot about what my colleagues are doing in the synthetic biology realm and how soft matter can actually uh, help enable uh, some of the challenges that they're dealing with. So that's an area that I'm, that I'm really excited about. Um, we are engaging also in, in uh, essentially high throughput explorations of how um, how do you say conditions in the synthesis of nanomaterials affect the outcomes of the materials that you that you obtain, uh, and and obviously it has a ton of applications in uh, in, in in clean energy, right? Uh, for, for solar cells, it has a lot of applications in uh, in, in quantum uh, uh, information systems, in sensors, and so on. So, so these are some of the things that we're working on right now, uh, but I still also have a, a very uh, special place in my heart for just interesting, uh, trying to understand interesting materials, uh, just because we just want to understand them and, and mm -hmm. develop the, the fundamentals about them, right? Like uh, sometimes there isn't an application uh, necessarily driving this uh, and, and, and that's totally fine and, and also exciting, at least to me. Of course. Um, what are, I, I know that you have an interest in uh, global equity and ways that technology can be used to, uh, to address problems in uh, poorly served communities. And a couple of years ago, after uh, Hurricane Maria, you had, you were involved in, uh, was it a student uh, project to, um, uh, in, in environmental remediation or water purification what was it? maybe i have maybe <laughs> i have it wrong no 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 it's 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 is is around the uh uh this yeah around this area so uh, uh, as you know I, I did my bachelor's in puerto rico i also was raised in puerto rico i, I was born in argentina but i i lived uh, uh most of my life growing up in, in Puerto Rico. So I have a lot of connections uh, uh, to the island, friends, family members, and, and so on that are still living in the island. Um, and yeah, when when the hurricane uh, hit the island, uh, like many other uh, uh, Puerto Ricans uh, living uh, here in the US, uh, we uh, we were kind of like stuck, right, with wanting to, to, to help uh, and and being yeah being an, an, an academic um, I realized that the best way for me to contribute uh, was probably not like trying to ship water bottles from Seattle right like um, mm -hmm. and that maybe there would be something more meaningful that I could do and um, and that's that's where this project kind of came about. Um, I saw students that were also equally motivated to, to, to help out, like uh, students are generally just want to save the world. 
um, so they're motivated, uh, right? Uh, when when there are uh, uh, challenges um, affecting, uh, um, yeah, populations across the world, and um, yeah, we were able to to start this project that ended up being one of my, uh, I don't know, most rewarding experiences as an academic, um, because it's so far outside of my area of expertise. Uh, so I learned a lot uh, in in this project, uh, and and it also kind of like mixed everything that I like about life as an academic. It allowed me to provide a, a, a meaningful service right to the communities that we help, and I'll tell you a little bit about what we did. Uh, it provided me an opportunity to work with students that actually got an amazing educational experience from this. And um, it also actually ended up in two academically peer-reviewed publications that uh, so we did research essentially mm -hmm. in this activity. And the focus of the project was to evaluate how small scale uh, solar uh, systems, uh, actually they're called nanogrids because they have storage generation and uh, essentially uh, conversion uh, of um, uh, solar uh, uh, essentially power right to, uh, to electrical power that the users can use, but they're really, really tiny. They're even smaller than what a, essentially a house solar system would do. And we evaluated what, are, what was the potential of these systems uh, being deployed in an emergency uh, to satisfy the needs of uh, families that had uh, needs for power to sustain their healthcare needs. So uh, there are a large number of populations that are extremely vulnerable uh, because uh, when power goes out, then they cannot actually get the health care that they rely on. Uh, mm -hmm. This might be mobility issues. This might be, um, I mean, some families uh, require uh, electricity to feed their loved ones uh, if, if they have essentially uh, feeding tubes, right, uh, because of their conditions or, um, I mean, just, just a gamut of uh, different conditions affecting people, people that couldn't sleep because they had sleep apnea and uh, their machines weren't working overnight. Um, and yeah, and, and those needs are, are on, I mean, normally met by the grid, but in an emergency, uh, these families would otherwise have to rely on, on gas or diesel powered generators, which um, I mean, are noisy, they produce uh, fumes, uh, they're very costly uh, to run and, and to maintain. Um, so yeah, so then they, we pose this question about like, what is the role of these small scale solar systems uh, of being deployed during these emergencies? And we were able to uh, essentially interview several families before and after they had opportunities to work with these systems and, and learn from them about what were their challenges, what were the things that they liked and that worked really well and what were um, essentially the, their overall thoughts about uh, uh, about these systems, mm -hmm. so. kind of an ethnographic interview combined with product market fit. Sort of is is the were the students undergraduates or graduate students? It was a mix of of all actually. Uh, I would say primarily graduate students mm -hmm. uh, because it, it it did involve travel to the island to to go and and actually perform these interviews and. A lot of the times the travel, I mean, we went to the island three times and um, this was during 
the middle of the quarter. So, uh, I mean, a few undergraduate students were able to manage to go with us, but uh, the majority of them were graduate students and, and from multiple different departments, some from uh, electrical engineering, some chemical engineering, some from um, essentially the, the med school or, or so it, it was really rewarding from that perspective. How did you obtain the funding for the project? Oh, we were we were really fortunate. Uh, uh, the Clean Energy Institute here at the University of Washington uh, provided us uh, initial funding to to travel and kind of like uh, the first trip was to to identify and, and set the the stage for our research questions, right? Uh, um, and then um, yeah, we also were able to get funding from the Clean Energy Group to. Uh, which is a nonprofit organization um, to essentially purchase the the, the systems uh, that we were going to deliver uh, to the um, uh, to the families, um, and then there were numerous individual donors that also supported uh, this project and, and enabled essentially the students to travel and um, and for us to also purchase the things that we needed to to actually help these families. Um, so how would you different sources. Mm -hmm. how would you characterize the state of recovery of puerto rico now from the hurricane it's it's i mean it's it's done like it's now i would say i don't want to say back to normal right uh, but i mean enough time has passed that a lot mm -hmm. of the the more acute uh problems have been tackled the the island still has a lot of uh, challenges ahead, right? Uh, but these are more, I would say, chronic, right? Like these are issues that are um, unresolved, uh, but that will take uh, a, a lot of investment and a lot of time to, to actually resolve them. Mm -hmm. um, the, the electrical uh, authority, I think, was uh, going through major changes uh, related to privatization and um there are challenges associated with these uh there are still communities that are are probably still uh, suffering with um uh inconsistent access to uh, to the power that they need uh but largely i would say that these challenges that remain i mean some of them might still be related to the hurricane but some of them are more systemic about like just the situation mm -hmm. in the island and 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 sometimes decades of like management uh, sure. challenges, right? What is education like on the island, particularly science and engineering education? Outstanding, like to be honest, uh, I mean, I had an amazing education and I am so happy um, to, to have been able to get my, my education from a public university in Puerto Rico and one of the so yeah so i did my bachelor's at the university of puerto rico in mayagüez colegio <laughs> that's mm -hmm. uh and the um the university uh i mean i had access to so many great opportunities uh as a student there i had amazing faculty in chemical engineering also outside of chemical engineering uh, the education uh was virtually free if you compare it to the tuition costs uh, in the US. Um, but the quality of the education was, was just outstanding. And, and 
And I love the fact that this was this made it so accessible, right, to a, a broad uh, and very diverse uh, a group of students that came from all kinds of backgrounds uh, all over the island. So this is something that I think the the U.S. system uh, is unfortunately unable to match. Uh, right uh, here is it, it's a little bit more segregated. You have like schools that are uh, serving, um, I mean, let's say more diverse populations and populations that maybe don't necessarily have access to um, the resources that are necessary to attend to some of the more expensive schools. Mm. Um, and and that that was not the case, at least in public education in, in, in Puerto Rico. It was, it was really, um, it was really nice to actually have these uh, this opportunity that that yeah to get educated with with, with such a diverse group of, of students um, it's interesting because diversity is also kind of weird right because we were all Hispanic or most mm -hmm. of us were Hispanic when when, when essentially <laughs> in the island so so diversity has a completely different meaning right uh, when you're a student in 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 Puerto Rico but uh, yeah I, I I look back at, at my years as a student there really really fondly um and high top-notch uh education i think that when we came to do our our phds here in the u.s uh, we did not feel like we were lagging behind yeah that's wonderful uh, in any way other than maybe the language right we had not had as much practice uh, mm -hmm. uh like living and, and speaking english uh, on a daily basis but yeah sure um what have you learned about teaching and assessment from lecturing on Zoom. This is something we had a short conversation uh, about on Twitter maybe 10 months ago. And I wonder um, how your, your thinking started and how it has evolved and uh, what lessons have, have, you, uh, have you learned? So I, I was fortunate to be teaching courses that actually did not suffer too much from the transition to Zoom over the last uh, uh, few years. So I don't know that my experience is um, uniform, right, uh, with what others uh, have experienced. But um, I actually learned a lot of positive things uh, uh, from the courses that I uh, that I taught. I, I I felt the students sometimes, depending on 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 their background, whether they were undergraduate or graduate students, um, would engage in different ways. Um, I I felt that the um, the the use of Zoom presented new opportunities that I had not thought about uh, as a, as a uh, as a faculty teaching in normal classroom instruction. So, for example, I could. Sometimes uh, for one of my introductory uh, engineering classes, I could do experiments in my kitchen and actually showcase them, right? Which would have been a lot more challenging to do um, in a physical instructional laboratory. Yeah. Um, I Assessment is much harder, I think. Assessment in my experience was, uh, was really, really uh, challenging. And I don't think that, that at least for me, assessing in a traditional form right with exams or or, or quizzes would have been um 
would have been very effective. So I tried to actually transition into more project-based or longer-term assignments uh, for for my assessments. Um, but yeah, I, I, there are some lessons that I think I am taking from the pandemic um, that I that I think I, I would probably uh, keep uh, keep in my mind for even even after we're out of this. Uh, like sometimes it, it yeah some lectures and some material might actually work better in a digital uh, in a digital format and um, and uh, I also learned a lot about like what would it actually really take to do a flipped classroom for example which uh, otherwise would not have crossed my mind uh, the possibility of actually flipping the classroom with where is where you you provide instructional material in video form mm -hmm. and then you use the class time right to uh, to help the students on a one-on-one -on -one or or more close um way to actually solve the problems and, and test whether they're actually learning the concepts and maybe clarify some of those uh, yeah. doubts yeah one of the difficulties i found in flipping a classroom on zoom is that one it's difficult to navigate between the breakout rooms without being pretty obtrusive uh, or intrusive. Um, you, you show up and nobody's talking because the professor's face suddenly appears in the breakout room. Uh, um, the, you know, the experience of walking from one group to another because you can see what group might need help and it's it's uh, a little bit a little bit messier on Zoom. I, I totally uh, understand. I, I guess I meant more like I before I would not have not considered even flipping a classroom under normal circumstances because mm -hmm. I did not know, for example, how I had no access to. Okay, what does it actually take to record yourself and record a lecture? And the fact that oh, yeah. they forced everyone to actually uh, teach right in front of the computer and actually digitize some of your, it became less intimidating. Now I might yeah. actually consider it for future lectures. Definitely a, a, a an education and multimedia production. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and some other sort of trivial things I think would be nice to have in person would be name placards um, because it was much easier, I think, to learn students' names, having their uh, their names under their uh, their videos or or even uh, pictures or avatars. Exactly. <laughs> Um, is UW going to be in person or um, or hybrid in the fall? The plan is for full in person, and that's what we're working with. So yeah. we are, yeah, we're we're definitely preparing for for a safe uh, in person experience for all our students, and um, I think that I'm I'm pretty confident that we we should be able to deliver. Um, I mean, again, an excellent as close as possible, right, to, to normal uh, uh, in-person experience. Um, things will still look a little bit different, right? Like um, there is uh, a mandate for uh, vaccinations and essentially uh, masking at this point and, and things like this uh, that are gonna make it a little bit different, right? And, and I'm, like we're still not out of the woods, um, but the university is working really, really hard uh, to 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 make it a, a an effective learning environment and and for our students to actually be able to take advantage of um, that in-person university experience that uh, many of them have not yet been able to to experience. Mm -hmm. 
and you are starting um, as uh, this fall, well, you've already started the position as interim chair of material science and engineering. Is that is that right? Yeah, not yet, though. I actually, uh, next week I start my position. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, 1st of September. But yeah, I am starting as interim chair. In so would you, would you prefer that I say congratulations or my condolences? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll answer that question in a month. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> now it, well, <laughs> it's intimidating and and at the same time, uh, uh, how do you say? I I feel honored that they uh, they thought of me as a, as a uh, as a person that could actually uh, help uh, with uh, moving the department forward. Um, and yeah, I I do know it's going to be. Uh, challenging right that uh, for me I am this is the first major leadership role I'm venturing into it's it's a different department than uh, the one I started in as an academic uh, I do have a lot of connections with faculty in that department that I that I've worked with in in the past um, so so yes I'm eager to to contribute and and, and, and to help uh, but at the same time, I, I would be lying if I would say that I am not a little bit intimidated right, course, by the yeah. challenges that are that are ahead. Likewise, with my own recent foray into student affairs and um, uh, directorship of our our student affairs uh, office, the Idea Center at, at, uh, at UCSD. Um, Speaking, this is a little bit um, of a garden path, but uh, I think it will yield some interesting uh, insights. Um, if you had to, if you were in a position to reform the way that NSF uh, thinks about broader impacts or changing the criteria by which broader impact statements are judged, what would you do? Hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> so. Uh, I think the, the unfortunate bit is that uh, broader impacts, um, everybody's expected to innovate and everybody's expected to uh, essentially have uh, how is it, a compelling, right, uh, broader impacts um, uh, section, right, and plan that uh, that goes beyond right what is usually expected, and and, and things that are usually expected are okay. You're going to be training and working with students. You're uh, going to be doing work that will eventually impact society, and so that's kind of like the garden, right? Like kind of like what is expected, um, but frequently reviewers will expect to see more than that. They'll expect to see some creativity, right? Uh, they'll expect to see something that is kind of like pushing boundaries or thinking about, okay, well, how, what would we do differently to, to make those things happen even better, which is great. From one, uh, like I actually think that being creative in broader impacts merits uh, essentially a good evaluation, right? Um, the problem that I see is that there's no reward system or checks and balances on what people are actually doing. Um, mm -hmm. So, I could say that I am going to do uh, a, a huge number of very creative broader impacts uh, activities as part of my proposal, but if um, if there's no evaluation, 
metric, right? Uh, about like whether I was actually successful at executing this or whether I even tried to execute this, uh, then there there are no teeth, right? Uh, I could say whatever uh, I want in that order impact statement, and 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 I mean it, it. There is no 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 checks and balances in in terms of the intellectual merit. There are checks, right? Like because you you are essentially required, right? Uh, uh, like your CV, for example, showcases the publications that came out, right, uh, out of your work and, and the awards that you that you get usually from uh, from your intellectual activities and, and so on. So so it would be great actually to um, to reward right those that are really innovating. Um, in in their broader impacts that are actually doing innovative things like uh, like this podcast, for example, right? I think that this is actually a way that provides access uh, or behind the curtains, right, uh, to a lot of viewers that are going to benefit from this. Um, and I think that that would be that would be one of the changes is that if, if the expectation is that broader impacts need to be creative and novel and pushing boundaries then there needs to be an evaluation criteria, right? That also checks on, on this, because I, I would venture to say that very few, um, a, a small percentage, uh, right, of, of the proposers are actually being able to execute um, yeah. effective broader impact statements as they describe them. Yeah. One issue is around logic and sustainability of a broader impacts project. Uh, if somebody is, if a PI is fortunate to get uh, one NSF grant every three years, then in 15 years, do you have five concurrent, you know, projects? Also, the assessment piece is very difficult, and it's very expensive to do it well. Um, people that that do longitudinal studies of uh, reductions in equity gaps and retention and yield rates, these take a lot of time, they, and they take a lot of bookkeeping and a lot of hard analysis and survey data. Um, and these aren't things that most... Um, that well, pretty much any PI in the engineering or or physical sciences, um, or natural sciences is trained to do, um, and yet it it's it's a minuscule fraction of the of the budget um, as well. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing is I, I think that the either there needs to be resources right associated to to, to these activities or or the expectation needs to be needs to be lowered right uh, and and that's kind of like what, what i was trying to imply is that if you are evaluating everybody by what they actually are executing then uh, people are going to essentially like propose things that are realistic right that can actually be executed uh mm -hmm. if, if there are no checks then you can propose like exorbitant uh, programs that are just not going to be feasible to implement without resources. So, so I just think that there, there, yeah, th there's a little bit of a, a mismatch there in the mm -hmm. in expectations and execution. Speaking of uh, mismatch, if you um, took a look at the federal research budget and you had to reallocate funds awarded to PIs for specific projects versus students or students and or postdocs uh, for 
their own training and they got to pick the project and the PI. Do we have the right balance or, or do you think it should be reallocated? Absolutely not. Yeah, like I'm, uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of like funding the students. I think that this is something that I don't think that there is a perfect system. I, I think that every system has flaws and, and, and challenges. There are many systems uh, in, in throughout the world that actually do fund the student um, through fellowships, uh, the graduate students I'm, I'm referring to, so, so PhD students, for example. Um, and and I, I think that one of the, the things that um, these students really benefit from is that they own their path. So um, they hold uh the reins right of the their training and, and education so if a student is not uh satisfied right with the mentoring that they're receiving uh from their pi then they they have right the resources and and they're empowered uh to essentially seek the appropriate mentoring or the opportunities for this i think um it, it alleviates a lot of the issues also that, that uh, PIs like uh, ourselves uh, feel in terms of um, ensuring, right, that, that we always have um, uh, streams of funding that are consistent with the student's uh, thesis of uh, research, right? Like, so um, it's very difficult, right, uh, to essentially have a series of three-year grants that are going to end up in a consistent topic to do a five-year typical uh, PhD thesis um, in a topical area that is essentially like the same, right? Like that, that allows the student to go really deep into those into those topics. Uh, moreover, um, it alleviates some of the stress, right? Like one of the things that is, that is really really stressful uh, for me as a, as a PI is, is is this fear, this constant fear of um, not winning the next uh, uh, proposal and, and essentially just, uh, I don't know, having to, to have attrition in, in, in my group or, uh, or essentially um, having to switch a student, right? Like uh, from their thesis research to, you know, now, now we're gonna work on this other project because uh, yeah. funding wasn't successful in that. It just, I just think it's, at the end of the day, the majority of our funding uh, through proposals goes directly to the students uh, it is a much more streamlined process to directly fund the students. And that doesn't mean that you need to get rid of the proposal system for other things like uh, uh, equipment, resources, travel, uh, PI support, and so on. Um, so there's some good things about having competitive proposals also, right? Like it, it pushes us all to, to think more creatively and new directions. Uh, but I would love for the students to feel some sense of security for their studies. Of course. Uh, and, yeah. Um, yeah. So much uh, unneeded adrenaline and cortisol is expended on a yearly basis as we try to fit these, you know, three-year grants into a, a five-year PhD program. It, it's like playing Tetris where you have to get <laughs> this row of four, but you only have these odd-shaped blocks and you need to 
spin them in the, in the right direction. Inevitably, you end up with this Frankenstein thesis, right? That, that mm -hmm. you have like three years of worth of projects in <laughs> one area and, and two years that are completely, I mean, hopefully somewhat related, but oftentimes different areas. How does your mentoring style change uh, when you're mentoring a GRFP funded student uh, versus a student funded on a grant, if, if at all, or maybe not mentoring style, but project selection? It, so, so it, okay, I, I, I'll admit I, I haven't had a, a, a GRFP uh, graduate student, but I've had students with other fellowships, right? Sure. Like uh, that are uh, somewhat equivalent. Um, and I don't, I don't think my mentoring changes um, in, in how I actually approach. I, I, I hope <laughs> that I'm mentoring and providing the same level of, uh, of mentoring. Yeah, I, I think I misspoke there. I really no, but, mean but I project what, selection. I, I understand what you mean. What, what, I, what I do feel the student does get um, that is different is that they, I mean, I feel like I am um, helping the student to sort out a thesis that is interesting to them and that I also kind of like I, I play a little bit more of a guidance into, okay, yeah, but how can we better define that problem? But the student, I think, gets a chance and an opportunity to participate more in the development of, of, of that um, underlying uh, problem statement that is going to drive their thesis research. Whereas if I, I am mentoring a student uh, out of a grant where I wrote it and it has a very clearly defined sets of goals and expectations, there is a lot less wiggle room, right, uh, to essentially uh, match the student's interests with what I decided was important to explore in that particular. So it, it gets to be a little bit more constraining and less creative, mm -hmm. I feel. I, I feel like the students that are on fellowships have more, more wiggle room for exploration, which is, I think, uh, oftentimes what leads to like just innovation and, and, and new areas of uh, of research. Uh, yeah. And students are so much more creative than than, than we are in, in these situations that mm -hmm. I, I feel like we're overly constraining them. Yeah, I agree. So you are known, uh, among many other things, as an advocate for LGBTQ uh, um, uh, issues uh, among researchers. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what special um, uh, challenges or equity issues uh, uh, your community faces. Yeah, so, so I'm part of the community. Um, I am uh, a trans uh, woman, so I, uh, I, and I transitioned during um, essentially my career as an, as an academic. So, um, so, so yeah, so I, I've definitely experienced uh, uh, some of the challenges. Obviously, this is very different for different people. I think that some uh, people uh, have uh, I don't know, like, uh, I mean, the LGBTQ community is so diverse, right, that, that you pretty much have this, um, it's hard to kind of like set up into individual mm -hmm, uh, categories. And I don't want to feel like I am speaking uh, universally about the challenges that, that others are, are facing, but but there are certainly challenges. Engineering is a, a, a very, very, very conservative field still. Um, and um 
I, I faced all kinds of uh, uh, challenges in terms of like uh, anything from from pronouns, right? Uh, that that just drive me nuts, right? Or um, uh, to uh, I don't know, like uh, uh, sometimes uh, like getting like a, a recent thing that 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 I uh, I've experienced lately is, is for example. Um, applying to programs, uh, right, uh, and 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 sometimes getting like no response back, right? Like uh, not not really. Um, so these are, for example, programs that might be uh, designed for uh, for women in leadership, right? And uh, you submit a, an application, and and you're I think the the term would be ghosted, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, you don't yeah. actually respond, and you're like thrown back, right? So so. So there's there's things that you perceive that are definitely there that you think is kind of weird. Am I the only one that is experienced these? Uh, are are others? And there are things that are uh, kind of like in your face, like you're experiencing right then and there and now, and they're very obvious. Um, and I, I feel like I can deal with the ones that are right then and there because I I feel empowered to do so, and I think that I have a support system that allows me to do that. I have a university that backs me up and so on. But I feel like there's probably all these underlying areas of potential discrimination or or differences that I don't even know are existing. Yeah, it's kind of in me, the right? soup. Yeah, it's in the soup, and it's probably happening, right? But you're you're just not not even aware uh, about them. Uh, and that's that's the ones that I think are, are more dangerous, right? Because nobody, I mean, if it's not evident, right, then then there's no way of proving that that there is a uh, that there is a problem or, or there's not even awareness that there is a problem. So so that is really a huge challenge. Um, and and I, I think that this is not just for LGBTQ, right? But it extends to, to women, to minorities, and and, and so on. So uh, there's probably a, a huge, a huge opaque level of um, uh, challenges yeah. associated to, to discrimination that, that we're not even aware exists. Yeah, and sometimes how this uh, sometimes discrimination is not uh, a a a positively occurring thing but rather the absence of support that comes from for example uh white guys tend to be in the positions of of power they have different relationships with each other and maybe don't invite the um the female or the minority student to a conference or to a lunch meeting and it's not necessarily um the it's it's the person who's doing it rarely feels like they're doing something nefarious but it's the fact that there's this automatic kind of segregation to like individuals and then as a consequence of the fact that white dudes are in charge of um you know so so much of uh, uh cultural and political power um in the u.s that it's kind of a uh you know and that's that's like the the least pernicious form but it's almost but it's almost the most ubiquitous uh, form of of discrimination 
<laughs> and it's, it's it's like what do you do to tackle that right like mm -hmm. like there's no there's no clear way of, of of essentially like resolving or at least i don't have a clear way of resolving that kind of a situation other than than i mean i don't know like the training education like and and it, it's at education at the earliest levels right like it's about how you raise a kid right uh, yeah. to, like it's not even when they're adults already like they've been formed as people and yeah um, and i think that there's a, a civilizing influence of art and culture and the more diverse uh, voices that are uh that we hear from and that are empowered to uh, uh to speak i think the better off uh we will all be i have a few uh closing kind of um uh, questions that I'd, I'd like. I, I want to be respectful of, you, of your time. We have about nine minutes left. Um, uh, but uh, sure, here we go. Um, how should letter writers for promotion and tenure files be decided? Oh, that's a great question. So I, I obviously I agree. I mean, the, there, there is something to be said about the, the way we decide on letter writers, right, that uh, should have uh, ideally, uh, no ties to to the the candidate, and 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 they should be. Um, I mean, you should at least have some unbiased assessment, right? Like uh, uh, of, of the candidates. Uh, but my caveat uh, about this is essentially about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Also, um, I think that there ought to be policies that ensure that the uh the letter writers that are being asked uh are essentially representative right of the community at large and that they're going to be um they're not going to be essentially uh I, I don't know like overrepresented in, in in one or 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 multiple different forms so i i don't know how you would actually uh implement this i i i have Actually, I have some ideas, but I don't know how implementable this, this could be. I mean, th there could be a check right before letter uh, uh, requests uh, for reviews go out that could be done at the college level. I mean, most colleges now also have a diversity, equity and inclusion, either um, associate deans or, or committees. Uh, sometimes departments have these too. Um, and, and there could be a check, right, uh, about, okay, well, are, are the letter writers that are being solicited uh, representative or likely to, to be a fair and unbiased assessment of the candidate? Um, so I'm, I'm sure that there are, there, are, there are things that could be done to, to make sure that, uh, that the chairs and, and, and the committees that are actually selecting these letter writers are putting a lot of thought into mm -hmm. uh, who these people are and, and where are they coming from and, and and how do they actually represent the community, right, uh, in terms of uh, assessing a candidate. Should undergraduate engineering students seek business training? Huh. <laughs> uh, for some of them, for sure, I think. Um, I don't think for universally, right? Like. Um, I I have a, been a major proponent of uh, entrepreneurship. I am excited, and and again, this was 
in my own interest in understanding uh, what are the steps to translating a technology from the lab into the real world. I've, I've learned a lot uh, about entrepreneurship. I've mentored uh, many student groups uh, in entrepreneurship and many of these students uh, have essentially seeked uh, business training, right? They've either taken um, uh, essentially courses uh, to, to complete a, a, a specialty or and they've enriched their education uh, by participating in these courses. Now, um, these students were not forced to engage in entrepreneurial projects. They self chose, right, uh, mm -hmm. themselves to make that part of their capstone uh, experience. So um, I don't think that universally is necessary for, for, for everyone. In chemical engineering, there are um, basic courses, right, in, in engineering economics uh, and design. Uh, that that I think are adequate for a good number of the students that are eventually uh, serving um, in industry. Uh, but for those that actually do have that that interest in technology translation, I think it can be incredibly rewarding to get that experience. So for a fraction of them, yes, I guess the answer Excellent. Is. <laughs> How often are you checking your home solar energy production these days? Uh, <laughs> so I was checking it a lot more than I am right now. Um, I, I am now satisfied that uh, it actually is working. <laughs> uh, I, there, there's little I can do to make it work more efficiently anymore. And, and now the, the weather in Seattle, it looks like it's starting to, to turn also. We're starting to get a few more uh, days of clouds and, and the evenings are, are coming in earlier. Um, so I am dealing with the, yeah, dealing with the fact that uh, it's going to be producing less and less <laughs> every day now. Uh, but I am satisfied actually with my investment. I think that the, the, the system is actually providing around like maybe 80, 85% of uh, the power we consume. That's great. Uh, and not quite a hundred percent, but uh, but it's everything that we could actually pack into our roof. So yeah, so we uh, <laughs> we had ours installed a little a few months before our daughter was born, and I insufficiently uh, accounted for the increased energy demands of a baby and toddler um, in oh. terms of washing machines, uh, portable AC, space heaters, that kind of thing. Are you, are you able to get closer than 80%? Uh, I, I'm, I'm think I'm around 80%. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, uh, we don't have AC needs and, and things like this in Seattle. So, well, at least not until recently now right. we had a heat wave this yeah. year but yeah uh, and finally have you figured out why your gen z daughters are playing cds i think that they are just mesmerized that this thing existed and that that was the <laughs> way we used to watch, to, to listen uh, to music so yeah so my oldest daughter uh discovered that we actually had a cd collection which are all the cds from uh the college years that we've accumulated uh before transitioning to spotify and apple music and things like that and they uh they're 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 just amazed that that was the way we listen to music and it's so different for them than it is for us right like uh they haven't had 
the experience of listening to a record from beginning to end. Like now it's so much more usual for them to just listen to a song that they mm -hmm. like. Uh, and yeah, so she was surprised actually when I taught her that, yeah, we don't have any CD players where you can play them on the Xbox and you can play them on your computer and you can play them on all these other places uh, that she was surprised like, oh, okay, I can listen to the CDs then. <laughs> I don't actually need a CD player. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Wonderful. Um, I need to come up with a new example to teach uh, embossing, photolithography, and replica molding in my uh, intro to nanoengineering class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you still using CDs and they don't I know am, what? I am. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What else, right? Like, can you do? <laughs> All right, Lilo. Uh, Dr. Lilo Pozzo, thank you very much for joining us. It was a wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Ideas in STEM Ed, a production of the Idea Engineering Student Center in the Jacobs School of Engineering at UC San Diego. This episode was edited and engineered by Sky Lee with theme music written and performed by John Viviani. Title art was created by Caitlin Wong. Special thanks to Sarah Eckerd for guest booking and marketing. The Idea Center works to promote community, success, and inclusion at all levels. To reach us for guest suggestions and other feedback, please send an email to ideadirector at eng.ucsd.edu. And to learn more about our programs, visit jacobsschool.ucsd.edu front slash idea. As a final note, the views expressed by me or the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the Idea Center, the Jacobs School of Engineering, or UC San Diego. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>